we are going to finish out, well, we're going to finish out Colossians today as in we're going to finish the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And guys, as I was kind of thinking about how to go back into Exodus, next Sunday we're, we're going to kind of do like a hybrid Colossians Exodus sermon together because we've, we've been walking through this book talking about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And before we dive back into Exodus, where we left off in Exodus was right before the law. And I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good for us to spend a week really looking at how do Jesus and the law fit together. Okay, In light of where we've been at in Exodus pointing towards Jesus, now we've been in Colossians reading and studying all about Jesus. Next week we're going to kind of see, okay, how do Jesus and the law intersect? And, and we'll just... You know, that, that's a question many of you guys might have that I've been wrestling through the past couple weeks getting ready to teach it. So we're going to spend next week wrestling through it together, and then we'll continue back into Exodus. Today we are finishing out Colossians. Um, and guys, my, my prayer in this is that you just hear the encouragement that Paul ends his letter with. I don't know about you, but it is amazing to me how fast our joy can fade. Personally, for me, we, I loved Easter, okay? I, we had a great Sunday together. We had a great time with our family afterwards. It was amazing. And then Monday, it was like 45 degrees and raining. And I woke up completely discouraged and was like, really? This is the day we get after Easter. Christ is risen. Go back to your freezing rain. It was, it was, not, it was not fun, okay? And, and it took me it took me most of Monday to realize I was, I was anxious, I was frustrated, and it was about nothing. Like, there was nothing there other than just, as, as John put, it, it, he put a, a powerful image that I have not gotten out of my head from the first sermon, that the, our enemy is one who not only likes to steal your lunch, but eat it right there in front of you as well. And that's, that's just an image I can't escape from, that, that truly... I let him eat my lunch in front of me on Monday. And, and you know what? Yesterday, we were stuck in traffic coming back down 81. I let him eat my lunch right in front of me again. It, it's, and of all times to let that happen, not right after Easter Sunday, okay? So it's, I, I'm with you. Life happens, and our joy feels like it gets sucked from us sometimes, okay? Paul, Paul understands this. And, and it might not be evident upon first glance as we're reading through the, the conclusion of Colossians here, but Paul is really addressing this, that if, if we are taking on where we left off last week, Christ's life as our own, right? We are making our life in his resurrection. If we are doing this, it's not necessarily easy, but we do know what this looks like, and we have a joy about going about this. So today we're going to we're going to conclude Colossians looking at chapter 3, verse 18, throughout chapter 4. And, and here's kind of where we're going this morning. With Christ is our life. So kind of like the application of last week. What do we do with this? We practice submission to one another. We mutually submit to others. We remain steadfast in prayer. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you guys, the moments that I am not steadfast in prayer, that's when all my joy gets sucked right out. And we, we mutually submit to others. We remain steadfast in prayer. We reflect Christ in all things. That what the Christian life ultimately boils down to is just daily letting Christ come to life within me. Letting him root out the things within me that don't 
bear God's image and letting me replace it with his life. This, this is where we're going, guys. We are in Colossians 3.18. I will read it, and then we will we'll dive in and study this morning. It begins with, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare it the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Fathers, we spend some time this morning in your word, studying what the Apostle Paul was writing as he was trying to make sense of how do we, you know, just as he left off last week, put off the old self, put on the self of Christ. Father, may you give us insight and, and wisdom to know, God, what, what's the big picture that Paul is talking about? What do we need to do within our individual lives as well? God, may, may this not uh, be something coming from me, but something that truly uh, is glorifying to you and is after your heart, Father, from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So guys, we, all of this, again is a response to what Paul says in verses 12 through 17 from last week, which I didn't read, but essentially Paul says in verse 12, put on then Christ's image. And we talked about how he goes and, and gives a lot of explanations as to, okay, what does Christ's image look like? 
So now Paul is moving into some specific application, and he begins with this picture of mutual submission that we've, we've already kind of talked about. I, and I, I forgot to, to tell you this, but if, if what we read this morning sounds a little bit familiar, like we've studied it before, we kind of have. When we were walking through the book of Ephesians last fall, the last chapter and a half of Ephesians reads very similarly to this. It's something that Paul, I guess, felt like he needed to address to the church in Colossae as he did with the church in Ephesus. And he begins in verse 18 by saying, he, women, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then men, in verse 19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Which is nearly identical to what he says in, Col uh, not Colossians, Ephesians 5. But there's, there's one notable exception. Um, when we were in Ephesians 5, I don't know if you guys remember this because I had to go back and look at my notes. So I've, you guys get a pass if you don't remember it. Paul doesn't actually put a verb in the Greek in the Ephesians translation where we read submit. It just literally says women to your husbands as to, the, as to God, as to Christ. And we were saying how it's, it's a little... It's a little dangerous for us to build an entire theology off of a word in English that's not there in Greek. Here, we, we get the exception. There is a word here in Colossians. It's, it's the verb upotasso. So if you want to go impress your friends afterwards, upotasso is your Greek word of the day. It means to place oneself under the authority of. This is what he's calling women to do to husbands. And I wrestled with that this week. Why? Why would Paul not use a word in one book that he's also using in another book when he's describing the same thing? And, and this is where, as a pastor, I have to tell you, I honestly don't know. Okay, I, I do not have the mind of Paul. I can't tell you why he puts the word in one place and not in another. But if we're reading these two things together saying, okay, ultimately, Paul's probably not trying to say something different than what he said in another letter. Paul is being consistent in the language. I'll, I'll give you guys my best guess. Um, and just know that this truly is my best interpretation of the word. This is not, uh, not on the same plane as scripture. We can, we can disagree here if we need to. Paul has been very consistent in using the language of authority throughout the book of Colossians, right? Just in a couple different places in chapter one, he talks about how he, Christ transferred us from life under the world's authority to life under Christ's authority. This chapter one, verse 13. He talks about in 116, how all authority was created in Christ. He uses the same verb. This authority is under Christ. It said it's held together by Christ in verse 17. And then he uses this verb again in chapter two, verse 15, that all the authority in the world is subject to Christ, right? So everything ultimately is under Christ. So when I, when I see the language that Paul's been using, it kind of makes sense he's going to use the same language as he's talking about these different relationships. Ultimately, Paul's, Paul's painting the picture of, hey, everything is under Christ. And so if everything is under Christ then we should not be trying to pay attention to, okay, well, then who on earth is better than one another because all of us are subject to Christ. This is the same language that Paul uses as he then moves in to talk about parents to children and masters to slaves. So, so my, my assumption would be Paul's making the same point that he did in Ephesians 5, 
but he's using the same language that he's been using throughout the book of Colossians. Okay, So, so Paul, Paul's being consistent in his book here to make the same point that he's made and, and is made as elsewhere in Scripture because Paul's not the only one that talks about this in this way. Peter puts in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? A, a call for in whatever role we have to one another, I mean, we are, we are going to have no problem submitting to one another because we understand ultimately we're under Christ. And this is also the same language he uses when he talks to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. That Greek verb there, agapo, is where we get agape from. You guys may be familiar with that. That's the same love that God uses to describe his love for us, which is the love he, he demonstrated by sending Christ to us. It's a, a self-sacrificing love. So really what Paul is calling wives to do and husbands to do, even though in English we are seeing different words, the Greek is giving us the same picture, okay? And, and I, you know, forgive me if I sound like I'm being nitpicky, but I, I know we, we love to kind of build a lot of theology off of our English translations, which are very, very good, okay? No, no complaints there. But in particular, the Greek is giving us a picture that Man, sometimes we just don't have the words to capture what, what was the original intent of the author. So, again, this, this picture of mutual submission is, is what we see here in the marriage relationship described in verses 18 and 19. But it, it continues throughout the, the rest of these relationships. In verses 20 all the way down through 4-2, we're, we're lumping in the parent-child and the master-slave relationship here because it, it's interesting Paul uses the same language for both of them. The, the key word there where he says, children, obey your parents and everything. It's the same verb he says when he's talking to slaves saying, serve your masters. That, that English serve and obey, it's the same word in the Greek. And it's the same word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. Basically, Paul's giving us the picture as a child was to relate to its father. So in, in the time and place that Paul was writing, the slave was to relate to its master. And it's the reason Paul gives similar charges to fathers and masters as to those under their charge. He calls them not to abuse their power over them because, again, they're all under Christ, right? If we are all under Christ, then there's no room for abusing power in whatever earthly positions we may find ourselves above or beneath one another. And it's, it's this, this imagery of being able to submit, to sacrifice, to serve one another because this is what we see in the image of Christ. And, and guys, why, why it's important for us to understand why I think Paul is, is coming back to this in multiple letters as he's writing to the church is, is, is truly, guys, Submitting to one another isn't our cultural default, okay? Think about the world of the early church that Paul was writing in, okay? This was a church that was really struggling 
in some ways because the, their leader, right, Christ, whom they were talking about, Christ had just been crucified at the time Colossians was written. This is about 30 years afterwards, okay? So here comes a church, here comes a faith that is proclaiming this guy who the world had killed 30 years ago was actually God and that by believing he was God and what he did, that means that we are somehow made righteous. I, I mean, it, it was not easy for the world to understand. It was not easy for the Jews to understand that this guy who had come and died and had not led a revolution in their minds, how could he be the one that was fulfilling all the Old Testament scriptures? So if you're putting yourself in that position where you're feeling constantly misunderstood and constantly taken advantage of, what's our natural tendency? Man, we got to stand up. Man, we got to take back. Man, we have to fight to make our voice heard. I, I, I was thinking about this this week. One of, one, of my, one of the things I wrestle with the most, and Abigail will tell you this comes out almost daily. It's, it's unfortunate. I have a really hard time thinking I'm being misunderstood, right? If, if you were to, to listen in on any argument that Abigail and I have, you would realize that I, I sometimes really don't even listen to her because I'm caring more about whether she's understanding where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to say than actually listening to what she is saying, which then in turn makes me not really be listening to her. It's, it's something I see within me that I, I know I, I can't be the only one. We, we have a hard time letting being misunderstood. And our default in being misunderstood is to, to stand even tighter, to like dig your heels and be like, no, you really have to be able to hear what I have to say. And I realize what, what Paul is teaching here in the picture of, of mutual submission, of being able to to love and to serve those around us regardless of whatever the, the status was given to them. It, it was radical for the world that he was writing in. Okay, Because the world that Paul was writing to, men were at the top, women and children were down at the bottom, and then even lower were slaves. And yet here he is saying, husbands, throw out that social structure, okay, for a second. Love your wives. Doesn't matter if the world is telling you the women are less, love your wives as your equal. Fathers, don't, don't let the world tell you that your children are beneath you for whatever your purpose you want them to do is obey your, you know, value your children. Masters, don't listen to what the world tells you about what your slaves should be able to do for you. Do not, I mean, he says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Why knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What Paul is pointing towards would have been radically different from the world. And, and guys, I, I would, in my humble opinion, I believe we're seeing the, the fruit of that now. Like, like we, are, we are really, for the first time in history, getting to see, played out over a long enough time, what, what does a very one-sided kind of submission structure lead toward. Okay, I, I think this is where our world is wrestling through getting to listen to people who, who have traditionally been oppressed and getting to hear, okay, what has that experience been? Because we just, we haven't been in that place. And Paul is writing to a group, to an audience of who people who have not been in that place. And he's saying, do not let the world tell you how you should 
be treating or should be valuing those. You guys are equal under Christ. It was a radical view that Paul was taking at the time. And I, and I realized, I, I think we're, we're, getting, we're getting there. But it, it should lead us, guys, look, if submitting is, is not our cultural default, then it's important for us to remember that because, look, our, our actions today as Christians, as Paul is saying here, it's, it's not about clinging to and digging our heels in to make sure, like, we are rightfully understood. He says, hey, it's actually one of learning to practice this submission as we learn to bear God's image. And I, I, I realized, I don't know if I really caught on to this when we were talking about this at Easter last week, but Christ, of all people, God himself, gave us a picture of submission. John puts it this way in, in chapter 6, verse 38. He says, he's recording the words of Christ speaking himself. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That even Jesus, as he's bearing out the image of God before mankind, even Christ submitted himself to the Father. And, and I, 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 I want to ask you guys to forgive me. We talked a lot about the image of God last week, and we didn't even, we didn't even get to this. Sometimes in Scripture you just can't cover Everything, but, but that was a big piece that I missed last week. The life of Christ involves submission. And he says, you know, here's what this practically looks like in, in, in these verses as he's talking about these different relationships. He says, hey, these, these means just in general, our lives will be marked by loving one another, verse 19, by obedience to God, verse 20, by gentleness, verse 21, by fearing God, verse 22, by service, verse 23, by pursuing the life of God, verse 24, by trusting God will avenge any wrongdoing, verse 25. I mean, those, those are very practical principles that tell us, okay, this is what practicing a, a life where I'm going to respect and, and love one another because I see this in the image of God. This, this is what this looks like. And guys, as we... I mean, maybe, maybe I need this more than you do, but we're, we're, instead of waiting to the end to do our reflection time, I'm going to give us 30 seconds right now just to be quiet and to be still and to say, okay, God, right now today, where am I struggling with this? Because as I, and, and again, you know, maybe this is more for me, but working through this text this week, this was rough. Okay, I got to this point on Monday and I just had to stop and come back later because I realized I, I am not as aware as I ought to be of where, where God is wrestling with me in this, okay? So I, I'm going to give us about just 30 seconds, okay? Just, and 30 seconds feels like a long time, okay, when you're in the middle of a sermon. But I promise it's, I'll keep track in my head just for us to be quiet and say, okay, God, where do I struggle with this today? Am I struggling because I, I'm, I'm struggling to love somebody who's hurt me? Am I struggling because I, I feel like if I... If I let go, then somebody else is just not going to understand where I'm coming from. Maybe it's the fear of being misunderstood. Maybe it's, I just, God, I'm really having a hard time being gracious towards this person, okay? We'll take 30 seconds. I'll just be open with God for that moment, and then we'll, we'll come back and keep going through Colossians.
Father, we are grateful that you, you have made us one with you in Christ. And God, even as we, we talk about how this is difficult and we're starting to see the fruit of it in our world, Lord, it, it is encouraging. It is encouraging to know that, that we are maybe in a different way, maybe a little bit more clearly, we are starting to see your word being lived out. We're starting to see why this is important. So God, I mean, may we just be encouraged this morning. We're not talking about something as if it's in a vacuum. We're not talking about it as if it's just some theory. Father, we, we are getting to see what does it look like to bury your heart in our lives, God, in, in, in big conversations and big things our world is wrestling through. And Father, the world needs our voice because it really needs you. God, may we, as we are being molded into your image, may we be patient and, and loving and, and obedient to you to get to carry this out, Father, so that just as, as Jesus was praying in John 17, the world will know the Father when the world has seen the unity within the church, to paraphrase Christ. So, Father, may we, may you continue to be loving, continue to be patient with us as we work this out. And, Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us to this life. And thank you that this is also not the end either, Lord. In your name we pray. It's, it's not the end, church, because this is not the only thing. So if just, again, be encouraged as I came back to this on Tuesday morning and went, well, thank goodness, man, if, that is, if I am wrestling with this, this is not the only piece of the puzzle here, okay? The second thing we do with Christ is our life as we are learning to practice this submission to one another. We are also learning to remain steadfast in prayer. Colossians 4.2, it's right there. Continue steadfastly in prayer. The Greek verb there where it says continue steadfastly, it's to give constant attention to something, Right? That we are just, at any moment, we're like, okay, how can I be in prayer here? How can I be in prayer here? How is God at work here that I could join him in prayer? And specifically, Paul calls us to be watchful in our prayers with thanksgiving. I thought, why, why thanksgiving? You know, of all the different types of prayers we can pray, why are we being watchful for prayer and thanksgiving? I think it really does two things. It trains us to pray expecting an answer. Because if we're going to be giving thanks to God, we're expecting him to move. So when we pray and we're watching in thanksgiving, we're expecting there to be an answer so we can thank God. Secondly, it trains us to give God glory in our prayers. We're not, we're realizing that it, is, it truly is up to God as to how he will answer and grant our prayer. But we know that he will. And so we are looking to give him the glory and praise as, as he does. In verses 3 and 4, Paul continues. He says, while you're praying in thankfulness, continue to pray for us and to pray for you know, all these believers that I am working with that I would be able to declare the mystery of Christ. And he, he just even takes it another step and he says, declaring the mystery of Christ is how I ought to speak. Paul says, like, this is the level I aspire to, church, that the way that I talk, the way that I conduct myself... That it's just the gospel. What a, what a high and holy calling that Paul believes we have as believers. So yeah, it, 
we should cover that in prayer, okay? Not something we're able to do on our own. In verses 7 through 18, you get all these different names of, of people that Paul says, okay, you know, I, I ask you to pray for us. Here's people and what they are doing. I mean, this you could imagine this was being read and they're saying, okay, guys, here's the prayer list this week. These are all people that, that we're praying for. Tychicus, he's a beloved brother and a faithful minister. His purpose, he went to the Colossian church to tell him, hey, guys, Paul, who wrote you this letter, here's everything that's going on in his life, verse 7. You learn that with Tychicus came a man named Onesimus. He's, he is the subject of the book of Philemon. It's a fantastic letter. If you want to read an entire book of the Bible in one day, I would choose Philemon. It's like 18 verses long, and that's it. But it's about this man, Onesimus, who, who was a slave, who was set freed, and to Paul had become, Paul calls him his son, and in another place he calls him his very own heart. So Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother to Paul. Paul says, pray for this man as well. Paul calls out three guys. He calls men of the circumcision. These were believers who were formerly Jewish, Archippus, Mark, and this Jesus guy who also went by the name Justice. He says, pray for them. They're a comfort to me. Paul's in prison, okay? Any comfort to Paul in prison is something that we should be praying for. So Paul says, pray for them. He says, pray for Epaphras, who's one of you, and who's been fervently really praying hard for you guys to be growing in maturity. So pray for the people praying for you. It says pray for Luke and Demas, two other men who are laboring with Paul. This Luke would go on to write his account of the gospel that we still read. So as they're praying for this man over here, this man ends up writing something that ends up in the Bible. Is prayer pretty important there? Paul says pray for this other church. That you guys, he says, you guys have a lot in common. So after you read this letter, send your letter there. They're going to send a letter to you. Paul, Paul says, like, you, it's your sister church. You guys are going through similar things. Encourage one another. Pray together. He says there's a, a woman named Nympha who's leading a local house church in her own home. Pray for her and her ministry. He says there's a man named Archippus who he has a calling from God to minister, but he's really struggling to faithfully pursue it. He says, pray for him, encourage him. And then finally, Paul, in, in typical humble Paul fashion, he ends the book saying, okay, you know, remember my chains, right? I'm also in prison. So if you could pray for me too, I would, I would appreciate that. And we, we can go on for days, guys, about why remaining steadfast in prayer is, is key for us as believers, but Paul call, calls out some very specific things here. He shows us how prayer retrains our heart and mind to be in tune with God's spirit. If we are being steadfast, if we are being in constant attention to prayer, over time, prayer begins to shape our hearts and our minds and the way we see things as we're constantly giving things up to God. He says, especially, that's why we pray being watchful in Thanksgiving, right? We are looking for God at work. We're looking to see what he's doing and how we can give glory to him. He, Paul shows us here, Prayer is part of our work of sharing the gospel, right? That as they are praying to be boldened to share the gospel themselves, they're also praying for other people who are at work sharing the gospel. He says, pray for gospel conversations, right? That God may open to us a door for the word. Prayer for confidence to, for us to share the gospel. It says, hey, pray that we might be able to make the mystery of Christ known to others, which is the way that we ought to speak. He says, just pray, pray that we might be bold into this task. 
He also shows us, guys, prayer draws us into the worldwide gospel work. It is a, I can't remember if John touched on this in Colossians 1, but it, it is a tool of the enemy to tell you that what you are going through, nobody else has ever gone through, right? If, if, we, if we have been walking through a season built on relational discipleship, talking about the importance of being in community with God and with others, then it is a tool of the enemy to tell you that you do not need that, that you do not need community with God, that you do not need community with others, that nobody else could possibly understand what you are going through and the pain and the suffering and the anguish that you are feeling. It, that is not of God. And Paul shows here when we are praying, we are reminded that we are not the only people that are going through this because we are, we are giving our struggle over to God and we are, we are starting to realize, God, I probably am not the only one who's dealing with this. God, send somebody to me who has gone through what I've gone through that they can, they can share my sorrow, but also share their wisdom and how they've walked through this. Guys, right now, the church in Ukraine is really struggling over how to be united in how they face the Russians. I was reading something this week that was saying about half the Ukrainian church wants to stand up and fight against Russia to save Ukraine, and the other half of the church is saying, well, if we're supposed to be loving our enemies, maybe we shouldn't be standing up and fighting, okay? I don't know which one is right, but here's a church facing intense persecution, and it's, it's not sure of what to do, okay? We are not the only church that's unsure of, of what to do based off of what they're seeing in the world in front of them. This is true worldwide. Say, so right now there are more people coming to Christ in Afghanistan and Iran than anywhere else in the entire world. This was a statistic released, I think it was like four months ago from the Pew Research Center. They were looking at numbers of conversions worldwide. And man, as, as we are praying for people to come to know Christ in New River Valley, Man, we could be praising God that on halfway around the world, in record numbers, in, in, in war-torn places, the gospel is, is shining forth like there's nothing else that's been seen like it, guys. It is, it is amazing. I'd also say, guys, like right now, the global church population has shifted. And this is a statistic from last year, so it's... Uh, safe to say it probably hasn't caught up to today, but if you were to add the number of Christians in North America, South America, and Europe, and then you were to add the number of Christians in Africa and Asia, not only is the number greater in Africa and Asia, but it's greater by 200 million people. I mean, that, that hit me hard because I realized, wow, then you know what? Then Maybe we operate with the mindset that what, what we are doing here in the church in America is like, is like the most important thing on the world stage. But we're in the minority right now because of how much the gospel has taken fruit elsewhere in the world. Praise be to God that that is true, right? Praise be that, that the gospel has advanced so much that most of our faith traditions come from either somebody in the Americas or somebody in Europe. But there is 200 million more Christians outside of that window than inside of that window. I mean, that, that is a blessing. 
church. And it tells us, hey, then we've got things to learn from our brothers and sisters in other countries because we are not the only people going through this experience. In fact, we are a smaller group of people going through this experience than elsewhere in the world. Prayer, man, prayer drawing us into an infinite God really helps us see, okay, thank you, Lord. I am not the only one that is going through this. And, not, and it doesn't just have to be something that's the ethereal they, that it's like somebody way over there. There could be, we don't even know. the na- We are fortunate to live in a community where there's people from all over the world living right here, right? Some of our neighbors are not from here, but they're going through the same things that we are. I mean, God is, God is amazing how he works, and prayer draws us into this worldwide work. So this is why Paul encourages us to be steadfast in prayer. The last thing, guys, he encourages us to do as he's concluding this letter is, is he's reminding us the life with Christ, really what it is boiling down to is, man, the, every day I am putting on the life of God as my own. Every day I am learning how what God is and who he is and what he does is going to change something about me. He says in in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. I love this phrase. This phrase, making the best use of the time, literally comes from one singular verb in the Greek that just means to buy up for oneself. I thought that's an odd way of putting it until you realize what else in Scripture uses the language of buying something for oneself? Redemption. This is Paul telling these believers, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming what you are going through, redeeming the people you work with, redeeming the situations that you find yourself in, redeem whatever is possible because you are people of redemption. Verse six, how do we do this? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. If I thought back over the conversations I had yesterday, I would have fallen very flat in this church. When you are sitting in traffic and a trip that should take you four hours takes you six Your speech does not tend to be gracious, nor does it tend to be seasoned with salt. In fact, what it leads me to do, and part of this comes from being a trainer at Blacksburg Transit, is I get very, very critical of other people's driving. And then nobody can tell me that I'm wrong because I'm trained to teach people how to drive a bus. Like, I would know if if a driving habit is good or not. I'm trained to spot bad driving habits. So Abigail can tell you, I, I probably went through... Every one of the 18 safe driving principles that we're told to teach yesterday, pointing out how bad people on 81 are at keeping up with them. Not gracious, not seasoned with salt, not my default. Paul says, hey, when you do this, not only are you you bearing out Christ, but you're also learning how you ought to answer each person. That our response to whomever in whatever situation is to be, Seasoned with salt, full of graciousness. And verses 7 through 18, I, I was thinking it, this could also be not just read as a, a prayer list for everybody in the church of who's going through what and how to pray for them, but it's also a call for the church to learn from these people who are active in the gospel ministry on their behalf. These, these men and women had stories, they had wisdom to share from those experiences that they had. So if we're called to be putting on the life of Christ, here's Paul saying, guys, here's like 20 people that are also doing the same thing in vastly different situations. Learn from them. Receive their words. Receive their prayers. Receive their encouragement. 
So I'll, wrapping all of this up this morning, guys, what do we learn about ourselves in this? The life of Christ is a redemptive life, church. So I pray our, our speech and the way we conduct ourselves just reflects that. I, I, I hope... And, and I pray when we teach this, I mean, this, this is not light stuff, okay? But I, I hope I don't come across as doom and gloom to y'all. Because we, we serve a redemptive God who is at work redeeming us. Okay, this is, this is heavy, but this is heavy from victory. Okay, this is not, this is not a, a struggle to try to get somewhere we're hoping eventually works. And guys, it also teaches us, hey, the life of Christ communicates grace and salt. We don't have to worry about grace and salt somehow cheapening truth. Speaking in grace and salt is exactly what Christ did. I mean, he took the time to build relationships with people. He took the time to get to share things with them as he got to know them. Okay, this is bearing, this is bearing the image of God. So as we reflect today, guys, I, I want to encourage you to just to take on this life of Christ with us. Next week, we're going to transition it back into exodus and talk about if this is who christ is and what he's done what does this mean for the old testament law which is which is something uh, it's a good question for us to ask but i want to encourage you guys hey let, let's join in taking on this life with christ together it might be a decision today to take it on for the first time it might be saying you know the the pastors talked a lot about these different community groups that we have. Uh, one in our house, the first and third Tuesdays. One in the Bowman's house, the first and third Wednesdays of each month. Times for us to get to fellowship and take on the life of Christ together. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll join one this week. May you consider joining one of our ministry teams. Back in February, we said we've got worship, children, prayer, missions and outreach, and connections. Man, is there a place I can take on this life of Christ here at this church? As you consider these things, guys, let's, let's join in prayer as we close. Oh, Lord, the world is artful to entrap. The world approaches in a fascinating guise. It extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Lord, let my faith scan every painted bauble and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. And my duties give me firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name, love as a working grace, and all commensurate with my trust. Let faith stride forth in giant power, and love respond with energy in every act. I often mourn the absence of my beloved Lord, whose smile makes earth a paradise, whose voice is sweetest music, whose presence gives all graces strength. But by unbelief, I often keep him outside my door. Let faith give entrance that he may abide with me forever. Thy word is full of promises, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruit of refreshing flavor when called by faith. May I be made rich in its riches. May I be strong in its power. May I be happy in its joy. May I abide in its sweetness. May I feast on its preciousness. May I draw life from its manna, Lord, increase our faith.